This episode of the Envelope podcast is supported by Universal Pictures' Oppenheimer, written and directed by Christopher Nolan. The Washington Post calls it a masterpiece. Oppenheimer is now nominated for 13 Academy Awards, including Best Director, Christopher Nolan, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Picture of the Year. Welcome to The Envelope. I'm Sean Finney. I'm Yvonne Villarreal. And I'm Mark Olson. You all were in it. Finals voting for the Oscars starts today. This is where all of the members across all the different branches and categories are all voting right now in this moment. Nominees are nervous and probably excited. Mm -hmm. It's been an interesting season. We've seen all of the award shows that culminate to this. But Mark, like, would you just give us like a quick overview of like the season and where it starts into how we are where we well, are? Well, I mean, now. going all the way back to like the fall film festivals when you know at. Um, Venice and Toronto and Telluride when some of the kind of like hopeful titles like are first emerging then you know you start to get into events like the Palm Springs Film Festival Gala the Golden Globes like those kind of like whistle stops along the way where people are you know hucking their wares you know for, <laughs> for people and then now we've got into the Guild Awards the DGA PGA the WGA the SAGs where you start to get a sense of you know where the voters from those bodies are thinking. There's a lot of crossover, obviously, with Academy voters. Yeah. So you things start to coalesce. And it's funny, some years it like starts to get a little wearisome and you're like, oh, you kind of feel like you know <laughs> who's going to win by the time you get to the Oscars. But some years it stays really exciting. And also it's great to see you know, the different sort of like storylines emerge, like personalities emerge. Yvonne, you, you talked to someone who I really think has been one of the real bright spots of this season and who's like really sort of seized the platform of awards season in a really exciting way. Yeah, he's speaking of course of America Ferreira, who's really like the heart and soul of this summer's blockbuster Barbie. And for those who don't know, she plays Gloria, who's really, you know, struggling to connect with her daughter and she's struggling to connect with herself. And she really sort of sets the, the story of Barbie in motion. You know, Barbie has these visions of, of what turns out to be Gloria and her sadness. And it sort of sets Barbie into sort of malfunctioning because <laughs> something's going on and they're both having this existential crisis and they're going through it together. And it's a really powerful performance in this sort of cotton candy sort of backdrop of a film. Mm -hmm. um, so it was really exciting to talk to her. And Mark, I mean, Another film that I was really struck by was Poor Things, and you spoke to the hair and makeup designer, Nadia Stacy, who's nominated, and I feel like I could spend like a whole hour just talking about the eyebrows, but <laughs> how was that conversation? It was really great, actually, because, you know, so she's, this is her second film with director Yorgos Lanthimos, her third film, actually, with, with uh, star Emma. Emma Stone. She actually was nominated for Cruella, her previous collaboration with Emma, and so, you know, Nadia just had really great things to say about the, you know, creating the look of the film, but also it was exciting because, you know, I think we're already like seeing like the poor things look like yeah. out on the streets and it's, you know, definitely was on a lot of recent uh, fashion runways. And so she had a lot to say about how, you know, the look of a movie can then kind of like influence culture and like reach out more broadly. And so that was something I was actually really excited and it was really fun to talk about. Well, I know what I am wearing for Halloween this year. When we come back, Yvonne's conversation with America Ferreira. America, thanks so much for being of here. Of course, it's so good to see you. Good to see you. Tell me, like, Oscar nominee, has that sunk in for you yet? How are you processing this? You know, it feels like waves, 
you know, like it's like I forget about it and I'm just, you know, cleaning up after my kids. And then something will happen. I'll be like, oh my God, that thing. It's so crazy. That's That happened. And yesterday I was at an event where it was the first time they like introduced me as Academy Award nominee, America for, and I was like, oh my God, it's so weird. You're like husband, the society should always introduce yes, me. Yes, yes, and my children have to call me Oscar Nani from now on. Do your kids know what's going on? No. No. No, no, well, my son, who's the older one, he's five, almost six, It's like, why are you getting so many flowers? Why are all the flowers for you? And, and you know, Ryan, my husband started explaining to him. I was like, don't, just, it, it, he doesn't need to. Something ha happy happened to Mama. Right. Yeah. Well, this role, I mean, from from start to finish, I would imagine it feels somewhat like a turning point in your career. Does it feel that way to you? Like how, what has it sort of made you see about what's possible or what's within reach for you? Mm, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, um, in a studio feature film level and also to have a filmmaker like Greta. I think probably when I started out, I had this assumption that like, you know, you, you, you know, do one good thing and then like Scorsese's knocking on your door, you know, <laughs> like the, the directors are going to come yeah. flock. And that's not, you know, I've had incredible successes mm -hmm. and, um, and, and, and still, you know, uh, to get to work with feature film uh, tour directors on, in a studio on a studio film level mm -hmm. and then also finding the right version of that right mm -hmm. that that feels like like I can shine in that mm -hmm. or, or it's sort of utilizing the best of me you know that kind of seems really um unlikely you know just that that those roles I've only just in my career begun to be considered for roles outside of Latina roles, you know, almost every role I've ever been offered was specifically written for a Latina, and there was a reason for that, you know, she was playing Latina in this movie, and so they had to find a Latina, and so I could be considered for that. But outside of that, I had a really hard time being considered for roles that weren't specifically written Latina, and so I think that that seemed less and less likely as my career went on, and I, and I just, you know, began to, I mean, I continued acting in things that I didn't produce, but I continued producing and trying to create opportunities, not just for the kinds of things I would love to act in, but the kinds of things that would create more opportunity right. for more Latino talent. Um, I started creating the kinds of roles that I would want to see out there for our community to step into. And so I, you know, in a way it was sort of like, I'll go over here and do this, you mm -hmm. know? And so, you know, to not be expecting anything and then to have Greta Gerwig call and say, who I've admired for so long and have been such a fan of from Frances Ha, you know, right. onward, just so inspired by her as a, such a unique voice in our industry, um, you know, to, to get that call that she had written this part with me in mind and wanted it to be me, it was really super unexpected and... And yeah, it really has, you know, given me an opportunity um, in in feature films that that uh, is unprecedented for, for me. Where are we going? Barbie land. What? Mom, are you really going to let Barbie take you and your tween daughter to an imaginary land? Yes, and you want to know why? Because 
I never get to do anything. I didn't even go on that cruise I won at your school raffle because I didn't have enough vacation days and your dad's allergic to sun. Oh, what about that? You can't just leave him. He'll be fine. Even before it was released, the film was generating so much discussion. Yeah, and then once it had its massive debut, I mean, it was being dissected, it was being praised, it was being criticized. I'm curious for you, were you keeping track of what some of the discussion was like and what did that sort of illuminate for you about how audiences engage with the work that yeah. you do? I was because it was the strike so we couldn't do anything. <laughs> like I, I wasn't working the way I normally yeah. would be or you know, engaging with audiences and in person mm -hmm. and so there was kind of nothing to do but sort of be like, what do you all think? And, you know, just like sitting there reading. And, you know, to me, it was such a sign of success that, that, you know, I think if you make something that doesn't, that doesn't cause conversation or controversy, you know, it's like, okay, you know, but to, to make something that, that people are responding to on such a global level, mm -hmm. it feels like that's, like you've done a thing, like you've made art, like you've started a conversation when some people love it and some people hate it and it's too much this here, but over there it's not enough of that. And, mm -hmm. and I think in a way, which is what I felt when I first read the script, it's like a piece of work like this shows us to ourselves. It shows us where we are in the conversation. And it's, to me, one of the most fascinating things I learned was I ran into the... Um, the the uh, Saudi the princess slash ambassador to the UN from Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. and she came to me at an event and she said, you know, I wanted you to know that in Saudi Arabia we got our first movie theater in 2018, one th movie theater, and Barbie had been banned in multiple countries mm -hmm. in the in the neighboring countries. She said for four weeks straight we had people pouring over the border to watch Barbie at our one movie theater, and you. You know, you could not, there was not an empty seat for weeks on end. And to know that, like, here's a movie that had been, in one part of the world, had been banned, mm -hmm. that people had to cross borders to get to. They wanted, they were willing, they wanted to be a part of this conversation or see what it was. And in another part of the world where the conversation was like, well, this is Feminism 101 or it's not feminist enough. You know, so to me, that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. To me, that's... You know, I don't think the goal of art should ever be to, like, make everyone happy. Mm -hmm. I think it, what's exciting about it, what thrilled me when I read the script was, this is a point of view, and this is yeah. saying something, and it has the courage to do that. And so I was just thrilled by the many conversations that it, that it sparked and is continuing to spark. One of the key scenes in the film is obviously your monologue. Um, I know at the LA premiere you had your three-year-old daughter on your lap mm. watching this. What is that like having her sort of ground you as you take in those words? Yeah. Because I imagine it's different than performing them or just seeing yeah. them without yeah. her in proximity. What did yeah. that do for you? Yeah, I mean, I think that they had never been in a movie theater. My children had never seen, and now they're in like a 3,000 seat theater yeah. watching their mom. So I was like, uh -huh. am I traumatizing them? Am I helping that? Like for me, it was about, you know, we had moved to London. They visited me on set. I was traveling to do press for Barbie. So I wanted them to understand what it was. It mm -hmm. was like, and here's the thing that mm -hmm. we made, that mm -hmm. mommy made mommy and you and helped dad. me make mm -hmm. and daddy mm -hmm. too, obviously. And, um, and so I wanted it to be like something that, 
solidified for them like the thing that we all did together. Mm-hmm. Having them there felt like I want I was you know I was seeing it through their eyes. It was like what are they res- responding to? And <laughs> yeah. what's exciting to them? And what are they going to do when daddy comes right, on screen? Right, you know? right. And they were sort of like stone-faced the whole time. But that scene in particular, which was hard for me to watch, you know, I we'd done that scene a million times. Mm. And so, not a million, clearly. Mm. <laughs> That's an overestimation. Um, you know, so for me, it was also taking in like, what were the moments and the takes that Greta picked and how did it come together? And then, you know, like anybody having to listen to their voice on a voicemail, like trying to get past, you know, the criticism of myself. But that day, having my children there, trying to see it all through their eyes, um, uh, it did land different. And I felt like I could hear the words. And and also, you know, we were amongst 3,000 very friendly audience members and and hearing, the, it was the first time I'd seen Netflix. it with an audience. And so see, hearing, receiving their applause and cheers, it was like, okay, I guess it's landing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, that was a special uh, experience. Well, the entirety of your performance really becomes even more moving and something to behold when you come to realize that Barbie's visions are of Gloria Mm -hmm. and it's her sadness that is causing Barbie to malfunction Mm -hmm. and we see these really poignant scenes of Gloria trying to connect with her daughter Mm -hmm. Gloria trying to reconnect with herself Mm -hmm. tell me about what it was like shooting those moments yeah yeah I mean for me that was the that was the excitement and the, the the like real gift of getting to play Gloria that she was both a character who had this childlike wonder mm-hmm. and could suspend her disbelief to play with well, Barbies yeah. and then believe that Barbie came into the real world and is taking mm-hmm. her to Barbie land and she sort of has this innate childlike wonder and awe and desire to lose herself in adventure and be inspired by it. Um, um, and at the same time, she's a very real woman mm-hmm. uh, who knows and has experienced disappointment and frustration and heartache and this push and pull of her relationship with her daughter and kind of what she's losing in this moment as her daughter's pulling away and what's not happening for her in her job and, you know, her disillusionment, her disenchantment, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of leading her to to grasp, to re-enchant her world. Mm -hmm. And, And at first I was confused by, like, how is this woman who's so, like, real and disappointed and has to deliver this monologue and understands all this stuff about womanhood, also the woman who believes Barbie came for her, Mm -hmm. right? And the reality was that the journey was to give her and myself the permission to be all of those Mm -hmm. things, which we are, like to maintain a childlike wonder and quality and a seeking out of joy and inspiration. And at the same time that we are real women who know the real world and can hold both the disappointment of it and the wonder and awe and inspiration in it. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of reconciling those two things within this one character that I think made her the most human. Mm -hmm. When we spoke ahead of the film's launch, you talked to me about how you didn't really have a connection to Barbie. It wasn't a doll that you played with. Maybe when you went to your cousin's house, 
did that change once you wrapped the movie? Like, do you feel do a I con- play with Barbie dolls now? <laughs> well, do you feel a connection to her? Like, if you're strolling down Target, can you walk down that aisle in a different way now? Yeah, I definitely look at Barbie differently. I have a niece, a five-year-old niece who owns. 82 Barbies, and she has all of them. Uh Every color, every shape, every size, the wheelchair Barbie, prosthetic leg Barbie, like she has all of the Barbies. And I watch her play with them and what I see is like, she's just telling herself stories Mm -hmm. all day and she's playing them out. And I think the beautiful thing is now there's more possibility in that world because there's more, more people, more, more realities represented. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think that I've never, th- I, because I didn't play with Barbies, I, I was not Seeking tapped that. in. Yeah. Or I just kind of wasn't tapped into like what people loved about uh-huh. them. And now having met so many people and watching my niece, realizing like, oh, this is a tool that young people use to kind of express the world they see around them. And not all kids are drawn to it. Um, but I kind of do in a way think of it as like that, that I feel like child's play is sacred and, and like that is something to protect Mm -hmm. and to make better for Mm -hmm. our children. And for, and also I feel like child's play is something to protect like inside of ourselves, Mm -hmm. particularly as women, right. As we grow older and sort of so much caretaking and responsibility and having to be so many things all at once, you know, takes hold. Where are the places in our adult lives that we get to stay connected to joy and the things we loved as young girls? Mm -hmm. I know you're about to direct I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter. Talk to me about how coming off something like Barbie and watching Greta in action sort of got you sort of creatively in the zone for something like that. And I know she allowed you to really sort of watch her in the process of doing things. Yeah. You saw Rodrigo, who we just had in here. Talk to me about what that was like and how you're sort of heading into this next chapter for yourself. Well, Mexican Daughter has been an adaptation that's been in the works that I've been a part of since 2019. Mm -hmm. So it's been five years, like almost five years of, of... setting this project up, developing it. Um, and I knew that I was, I knew I had that in the works when I went to go do Barbie. And Greta was incredibly gracious and just said to me, I want you to be anywhere you want to be. And so she let me sit in on her and Rodrigo Prieto shot listing. Mm-hmm. I sat in in visual effects um, meetings with, you know, uh, getting to learn and hear about levels of technology that like, you know, are That's so right. above my budget range. But, but it, you know, she was so generous. And, and honestly, just watching her operate, watching the way she was on set and, and how fiercely she protected the creative space and process mm-hmm. with all of the pressure of a massive budget film with so much expectation she was so present and and protective of each moment and 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 I felt like oh that's what a director's number one job is right it's not to you know worry about the schedule and coming and of course you have an incredible team who's there worrying about those things but that that what I learned from her was watching her be the director who was incredibly loyal to to each and every single moment and making sure that we were finding 
the best version of whatever we were doing. Well, I'm very excited yeah. for that to come out. Thank, Thank you so you. much for taking the time. Thank it was such so a pleasure much. seeing you again and speaking with you. Thank you. Thanks. Coming up is Mark's interview with Nadia Stacy from Poor Things. And so we're here with Nadia Stacy, hair and makeup nominee for Poor Things. Nadia, thank you so much for being here. And now we're talking on the afternoon of the nominees luncheon, which many people say is one of their favorite parts of award season. This is your second time as a nominee. Is this your second time here at the luncheon? No, it's my second nomination, but I missed the first luncheon. Um, I was working and I didn't get to come to it, but everybody told me it's a really great part of the whole award season. and just feels like everyone is celebrating everyone and it's kind of, it, yeah, it was just a really nice space to be in, it was good. And so can I ask, who were who you seated with? I was with the sound nominee for Oppenheimer, um, visual effects for Guardians of the Galaxy, um, documentary makers, a really good, fun mix of, t of a table really, it was great, yeah. And what was it like being in the class photo? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of clapping for a long time, but <laughs> just surreal. When when I got up there, Mark Ruffalo was stood behind me, so he kind of grabbed me and hugged me, and uh, he was, yeah, you kind of have to, it's a pinch yourself moment, so yeah, it was great. And now, Poor Things is actually the second film that you've worked on with director Yorgos Lanthimos, mm -hmm. and tell me a little bit about developing that relationship and what it was like for you moving from working on The Favourite to Poor Things. Well, you would think that working with him a second time that you would have a kind of insider's knowledge, uh, but you don't. You never know what's going on. And uh, I, I remember hearing uh, Colin Farrell once say that he'd worked with him, I think, two or three times, and he had no clue what was going on every time. <laughs> but he just knew that if he asked him again, he would be there in a heartbeat. And it's, it kind of feels like that, because you just, you're never really sure. And I didn't mm -hmm. really know what we were making until I actually saw the film. So it's the most creative freedom that you're ever going to, be given I think and uh, that yeah so you, you're very aware that he's in charge and that he knows where he's going with it but you kind of have to find you have to go deep and find you know something to bring to him so and what is that experience like like with regards to poor things I've read where a lot of the color palette that you worked with was like based on like in vintage anatomy photos? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Well, I, I always come on board after production design and costume design, so they really started this kind of design process and um, color palettes and that kind of thing. And I saw that there was lots of uh, medical references in Baxter's house. And so the first time that I was able to play with makeup, I used those references as the color palette for Paris. And Shona and James, our production designers, had used those in Madame Swiney's brothel. So, you know, just to kind of tie it all in together. But that's the thing with Yorgos films as well. I mean, he's not a fan of makeup if you don't need it. Mm -hmm. So there needs to be a reason for it and it needs to be part of the storytelling process. So there always has to be thought behind what you're doing. And now, especially with a movie like Poor Things, where it, the vision of the film, the world of the film is so cohesive, what are those collaborations like with the production designer, the costume designer, the cinematographer? Like, how are all of you working together so everything comes together the way that it does? You kind of, you have to work really closely together because you're creating something new and you're creating something that's kind of off kilter you're not really you know you're not really sure exactly what it is but because of that it's it's kind of it's it's amazing but it's also scary because there's no boundaries mm -hmm. so you don't know how far to push it sometimes so it's good to 
be working with those creatives where you can see how, where they're going with things to see if you are all in that world to make it cohesive, you know? Um, and a lot of the time you're kind of going to each other, do you know what you're doing? No, no, do you know what I mean? <laughs> and you have to kind of figure it out, you know, um, amongst yourselves and it, it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing. And then this strange sort of alchemy happens where it just comes together. Mm -hmm. And again, I didn't even know that we had hit it as well as we had until I saw the film and was like, this is so, feels of the same world, all of it. And now this, this is also your uh, third film, I think, working with Emma Stone. You previously worked on Cruella, which uh, was what your other nomination was, was for, as well as The Favourite. And does that feel more like a collaboration now? Like, what is your dynamic like working with Emma? Well, to work with a friend is, and particularly in that space, hair and makeup is such a kind of personal space. Mm -hmm. And um, and we get them ready for set in every sense of the word. You know, they they arrive in the morning and we're usually the first place they go. So, and that, that becomes a, a space where you really need trust with each other. And she has also also always allowed me creative freedom to play and to try new things. So I never feel like any idea I put on the table is too far because she'll always let me try it. And everything kind of works on her anyway. But, um, you know, she and particularly in this one with her being a producer as well, she was very involved in the creative process. Um, and it's great now, yeah, there's the, the trust there and there's a kind of shorthand so I tend to know what she's going to respond to in terms of looks and what she likes and that kind of thing. So, but with Bella, it was really important that we created something new and different and that we told Bella's story in a way, you know, she's such a kind of marker against society. How she looks is really important. So um, it, was, it was really fun to, to develop that with Emma. But now, if I'm understanding this correctly, her black hair in the film was the result of a mistake, was of like a, a, a dye job gone wrong? We were always gonna go dark, but the idea was that she would go dark and then we could keep going and see how far that needed to go. Because you can't come back, it's very hard to go back, So, but you can keep going darker. So she was having her hair done with her colorist in LA and then messaged me and said, I think it's gone very dark. <laughs> um, and actually when she arrived in Budapest, it was exactly what it needed to be. Bella, when I look back on it now, I, I can't believe we ever thought it wouldn't be black because yeah. it needs to be kind of strange amongst this multicolored world that the other creatives had developed. and. She needs to be, she needs to have this very strong silhouette in the middle of that and her hair and her kind of skin tone and palette and the length of it really is a kind of marker of that and of who she is. So, but yeah, it was a, it was a mistake in the first place. A happy accident, I like to say. And th throughout the film, she's shot from behind and so we, to some extent, we always are seeing her hair from behind, and I think it actually sort of like grows through the course of the film, yeah. and then she wears it in a, a braid a few times. Do you know that those that hair was gonna be shot from behind in that specific, like were you designing the look for those shots, or was it just came about that way? No, you wouldn't, I wouldn't know that, and that's the kind of thing that we wouldn't, we wouldn't know until you get, you know, on the day of what he's gonna do. But I knew that her hair was a part of her journey. It grows with her as she moves along to all these different places. It grows in length. Um, by the time we get to Lisbon, to Paris, it's completely, um, it's at 42 inches by the time we get to Paris. And the way she um, styles it as well is a real, 
indication of where she is as well. When it's tied back into a braid in the beginning, that's because she's in controlled environment and Miss Prim is looking after her. But when she goes off on her own, she would have no clue how to dress her hair or know that it wouldn't be proper to have your hair down as a lady in that time. She wouldn't know that, you know, she has no society restraints. So for it to be just flowing wild and free, it's kind of who, you know, a real marker of who she is. Mm. I've seen a number of people online, it was her Paris look in particular. It's like a very sharp angled kind of black outfit and silhouette and then her hair and a braid down her back. And I've seen multiple people say that they basically like, they want that look. <laughs> it's one of my favorite looks actually. I love that costume. And now is it exciting for you? Like, do you ever see, like, I don't know if this happened with Corella, for example, where you get, you see people like mimicking the looks from the film in the real world? Oh, I mean, Cruella was crazy. Uh, like the amount of cosplayers and people that did their versions of the makeup and sent them to me still happens now, which is crazy. And um, it, it's amazing if you create something that you think people might copy. You know, I wonder if when we get to Halloween, there will be Bellas wandering around with their long dark hair. So it's, you know, it's kind of, it's great that you can be part of that. Yeah, absolutely. But also the film was in production a little over two, two and a half years ago now, and yet just the most recent Paris runway shows, like many people noted how the looks on the runways like very much were in concert with the looks from Poor Things, especially Galliano's Maison Margiela show. Mm -hmm. How does that happen? Like, what is it? For you, like when you see like something, you do you feel like you all predicted something two years ago when you were making the movie, or like how does that connection happen? I think there is a strong connection there with um, Pat McGrath, who is the designer of those, um, particularly those shows. Um, I, I'm a huge fan of her work, and I I think there's a connection in our work that. Um, it's taking period styles and kind of twisting it and mm -hmm. using silhouettes from 20s or 30s or eyebrow shapes or colours or lip shapes, but then slightly doing something different like that that show with the glass skin, but with 1920s and 30s shapes. Mm. It's a really cool idea. And, you know, we were kind of doing something similar in the brothel. They're, they're kind of 1920s, 30s looks in a Victorian film that's not really Victorian. And so it's kind of constantly pushing something and, you know, cause everything's done, been done before, mm -hmm. but it's how you turn and change it and make it something new. So mm. yeah, I think there is a connection and I'm a huge fan of her work, so. Not just Emma, but also in particular with Willem Dafoe, like working on the prosthetics for him, which in some ways it's like a cubist distortion of like what is a very recognizable face. Like, how did you work with Willem on, on creating the look for that character? The first image that we had for that was a Francis Bacon painting, and it's a, it is a distortion of a face. So you can see the man there, but the face is kind of off balance, and, um, and that was a real kind of um, reference right from the beginning. Because I wanted to create something that you still saw the man, and you still saw Willem. Because if you get Willem Dafoe, you don't want to cover that face. It's incredible, and you know. So, I and I and with prosthetics as well, I always like to kind of come back slightly so that we're not completely covering the face. Mm. Um, and it was the first time that Yorgos has worked with prosthetics in that way as well. So, I have to kind of ease that in, you know. And then so I worked with Mark Coolio and Josh Weston um, to develop the ideas, and and we kind of just came across had so many variations of it. Um, but it, he was literally like a man put together, which is mm -hmm. what it would have been. And again, it's telling the story of what his father did to him. Did he, 
take his ear off and put it back on? Did he open his head? Did he, you know, it, it's all kind of operations and uh, and the look has come from that story. So, um, and then Willem was just really interested with each, what each part meant, what's the story behind it. And, you know, and as soon as he could believe what that was as his character, he was just super easy, very chilled in the makeup chair. Although I do laugh because he, he said he was in the makeup chair for six hours and he was in for two hours and 40, but it must have felt like six. <laughs> <laughs> it must have felt a long time. <laughs> and I've, I've read as well that uh, at the beginning of the production, you got an email from Yorgos telling you no wig, that he wanted no wigs. What do you do with a directive like that? I mean, <laughs> I'm just sort of used to it, but that's exactly what the email said. It just said two words, no wigs, nothing else. Um, so you have to kind of laugh and then think, right, how do I, how do I go about this? He's the same with makeup. He'll, he'll wipe your face to see if there's makeup on. Because if, if it shouldn't be on, it shouldn't be on. So, um, And you have to find ways to be creative and how to do it. And actually, he's right. It's... If you saw even uh, even how good we could uh, we could put a wig on her, if you saw wig lace at any point, it would completely pull you out of that story. You know, she's a baby in the beginning. She shouldn't have anything that's kind of artificial on her. It should be very natural. And so he was right not to have wigs on her. But um, yeah, you have to come up with creative solutions. There's one wig which is Hannah on the ship, the lady with the white hair. That's the only wig I was allowed. Mm. <laughs> and now, is there a trick to creating a sort of a no makeup look? Because presumably there's still makeup involved even then. Yeah, yes, but if Yorgos is watching this, no, there's no makeup. <laughs> um, it's a lot about skincare, so you have to kind of make sure that the base of, of the, you know, the kind of canvas is good, basically. So we worked a lot on her skincare and then cheated things like kind of eyebrow gels to, you know, put those in place and fill in her eyebrows at times or... Um, but generally, from the beginning of the film, it's an absolute choice to have no makeup mm. because, as I said, if you see it, it's wrong. She's a baby. She, where would she have makeup from? So even if it was to cheat for camera, it's wrong. Um, and I love that, that she doesn't have it, and then there's a real choice to have that in Paris. And again, it's, it's for purpose. They're, they're painting their faces to attract men in the brothel. That's, there's a purpose to the makeup. It's not to make herself pretty for society. It's... There's a reason behind it, so I, I love that. Do you have any favorite online makeup tutorials? Like, do you ever go online to see what people are doing now? No, I kind of, I love, I follow uh, skincare specialists. I love those, I'm obsessed with them, and I'm obsessed with products. So mm -hmm. they, tell, they talk about makeup products, and uh, there's an English journalist called Sally Hughes that I follow all the time, and look what she's doing. And But I, I think I tend to stay away from makeup because I'm kind of the most unlikely makeup designer. I never thought that this is what I would do. And it's mm -hmm. not, I, I want to create character rather mm -hmm. than be interested in sort of beauty and beauty products and makeup in that way. It's always about character. So I'd rather wait till I got the script and then figure out. Mm -hmm. And then my research is always in a different way rather than, you know, makeup. Well, Nadia Stacey, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining uh, us. And thank you both, I just have to say, for letting me join this season. I mean, we've laughed, we've ugly cried watching films. That's and how honest, we haze, that's the how ugly cries. Yeah, and yeah. honestly, it's been a good season, but it's been better being it's here. It's been great having you. Thank you all so much. And please like and subscribe wherever you listen to or watch your podcasts. Thanks again for being here.